on this episode, Howling, Wolverines, and the Brown Girls Doc Mafia. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. Your hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Almost There Adventure podcast. Today, we have an amazing guest, someone who I've I've met a few times, but it's been a few years, so I'm super excited to have her on the show, uh, Amy Marquis. Amy, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Jason. It's awesome to reconnect. Yeah, well, why don't you please just tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a filmmaker. I'm a director-editor of... Uh, independent and documentary films out here in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I've been making films for 10 years full time. Uh, I started being um, kind of wooed by the filmmaking art when I was still a magazine editor based in Washington, D.C. And I think, Jason, that's how we yeah. became connected, right? Was yeah. through the National Parks topic. Yeah, we met at a couple of film festivals. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I vaguely remember um, you had food poisoning. Is that right? Or was it Dana that had? <laughs> one of the two of you had really bad food poisoning, but was still very nice. And we all just felt, was, everyone else felt really bad for you. Everyone's like, what, either you, it was you, was it you or Dana? I, I, I don't recall. No, I was, I was yeah. pretty sick on that Yosemite yeah, okay. trip. I don't, I don't even know. It wasn't quite the food poisoning level, but I, I had a bout of a bunch of stuff. And my daughter, who was 18 months at the time, was there with me. Yeah. And, um, and whew, she was a handful at that age. So I, that, I, of all the film fests I've ever been to, that was probably the one I interacted with the least, sadly. <laughs> and I think we met at least at one or two others. I mean, the way it works is you, your films come out at the same time, so you end up in these little sort of clicks of people that go from film festival to film festival. So I know I, I don't remember if it was the same movies or it was later films that we both did, but I, I remember meeting you again at least one other time, but I don't recall which, uh, which film or festival it was. It's always fun to see people and meet people and then you know get a chance to speak to them again. So uh, it's awesome you're here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's great to be here. Um, so obviously you mentioned you're from Boulder. Um, you know, this might air a little bit later, but unfortunately there's been some very sad stuff with Boulder and then obviously, you know, the community you live in and then a community you're part of like what, a week and a half, two weeks ago in Georgia. So there's been some violence. So I, I no other way other than to like, if you had anything you wanted to say or discuss about it, just want to open up the, the floor to you on that. Yeah. Thanks. Um, it's pretty raw. Um, my daughter and I, I had a, a short window between calls this morning and so I drove over to the, the vigil um, outside of King Supers in South Boulder, um, which is our neighborhood. Um, I lived there for seven years. Her dad still lives in that neighborhood and Era's school, elementary school, is just blocks away. So, you know, that King Supers is a story we've been to countless times. I can remember watching Era as a three-year-old, you know, run up that ramp. I remember standing in line countless times for prescription drugs and you know, I, I, I think the more I experience the trauma myself, the more I realize that we think we know what's happening in communities that have been affected by mass shootings like this. 
Um, but until, until it's your community, it's really hard to understand what the process feels like. Um, you know, I am a, a, a mixed race woman. Um, I'm a BIPOC filmmaker. This comes on the heels of the shooting in Atlanta. Um, I can be white passing um, to some white people, but the fact is, you know, I am of Asian descent. And so even though I don't believe I am a target for the violence that these women experienced in Atlanta, you know, I, I feel it very deeply, just on a personal level. Um, and it's obviously a community I want to stand behind and, and next to. Um, so, you know, between those two things, uh, yeah, it's been an interesting couple weeks. And I just can't tell you how many times I have felt grateful that I have films on my plate right now that I can feed this energy into. It's a really, you know, and I think this is true for any artist, um, to be able to have a craft that you can turn to when life gets really confusing or um, scary, um, you know, to, to be able to take anger and shape it into something constructive that might help people who watch it um, and that's, I don't make films to help people. I do it for myself, but, you know, to, to give voice to someone who might feel alone, um, that's, it's, it's incredibly, uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to have the craft. I will say you may not make them to help people, but I think all the films I've seen of yours help people. I mean, they're all really, you know, very beautiful, very well made, and they're very human and very, you know, uplifting. So, you know. Maybe maybe it's not your intent, and I think it's right that you make them fear. I think that's important. People understand the artists do. You have to have some of that compliment, but just let mm -hmm. me tell you, I think they're they're all very great, and they they do help people. So thank you, know. you. I appreciate yeah. that. So as a storyteller, Amy, I mean, moments like this, like you said, like they're shaping your work, and they they can't help but affect everyone. But I think as a storyteller, and as you said, a creative, um, does impact feel immediate? Does it feel like? this is a story to, that you're going to tell in the future? Does it feel like it influences the stories that you're working on now? Does it change the direction of where you're at? You know, your point, you see these things when it happens so close to home, there's a different understanding now. I'm just yeah. curious. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, the farther along I get in my career, um, the harder it is for me to separate things into different bins. I mean, my personal life is absolutely, my film life is absolutely my personal life. You know, my film babies are actually, you know, absolutely part of me as a parent and my daughter is absolutely part of my films. So um, there's just, there's a ton of crossover between the personal and professional. And I think the, the thing that I'm really trying to practice now is to find my um, find comfort in that flow and trust in it too. So um, I suppose that's kind of a woo-woo way to answer that question. But I, you know, I think, you know, right now, and, and maybe maybe it would help to tell you what I'm actually have on my plate that I'm working on, because that helps clarify that a little bit. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I had been developing a film with my daughter. Um, and it, it, it stemmed from this kind of restlessness and discomfort that I felt in our, our very perfectly manicured white suburban community, um, right out here on the east edge of Boulder. Um, 
for a long time, as I was trying to figure out what this film was supposed to be, I thought that it was um, a lack of nature in our lives. And, um, you know, I would kind of compare her childhood to mine. You know, my mom was calling me in for dinner. Um, I played outside every day. I was exploring in fields by myself when I was eight, you know, down the street from my house. And, and that wasn't what Era's life looked like until the pandemic. So when everything shut down, we actually had a little space in the beginning of it to go out and like, like break out onto the golf course, which had shut down. Um, and, and I don't know if you heard about what was going on in Colorado, but um, at eight o'clock every night, people would howl in the neighborhood to, it was our Colorado way of honoring the healthcare workers and like howling for grandparents. It was, it was morning, it was community, it was connectivity in a time when everyone was feeling super isolated. So, so all this stuff started kind of blowing up again, like behind these white picket fences. And I was like, sweet, this is it. Like, this is a thing that's been missing. You know, now Aaron and I can go out and experience our, our neighborhood and like find the wild in it and find the wild in ourselves. Um, but that didn't actually address what I was feeling on the inside. And then Breonna Taylor was shot and then Ahmaud Aubrey was shot and then George Floyd was, was killed. And um, all of these things started stacking up and I realized that my discomfort in my white community stemmed from something um, much bigger and systemic and insidious and, um, and it wasn't just a nature issue, it was a, it was a racism issue. So I'm making a short film now, I'm like a day or two away from Fine Cut um, we, we fundraised for this on Kickstarter last summer, um, and I've got my post crew teed up to take over, you know, to make the score, and um, we're going to have an original score and, um, and do some, some cool graphics and stuff, uh, but that's the next big film coming out. I also have um, a feature documentary that's also racial justice um, that I'm editing, and, um, and another feature documentary about... Um, the BIPOC experience in white communities. Um, and that's one that I'm developing now. So does that help answer that question? Yeah. You sound busy. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your two days from Fine Cut. I really extra, it makes me appreciate the fact that you're here with us even more. Cause obviously, you know, um, <laughs> you know, honestly, Jason, like yeah. every conversation I have about this, it helps clarify a little something in my script that I might be spinning over. Um, you know, this is a film I've not been able to rush to the finish line. Um, and thankfully it's my own, so I can take my time with it if I need to. Uh, but you know, it's gotten really personal. It's no longer just about my daughter. It's also about me really, um, understanding my own identity as a half Indonesian adopted by white parents into a white community. Um, so there's, you know, it's dealing with my own blind spots that I didn't recognize until last summer um, and really trying to find my voice in that, in that um, role. A lot of your films seem to deal with uh, advocacy and storytelling. And was the first, the was your first film, the, the way home? It was. Yeah. Okay. So, and that talked about uh, a group of um, African-American people who were visiting Yosemite for the very first time and kind of what, you know, trying to encourage people that, you know, this is a beautiful place for all people 
of all colors and, and social economic status and everything else. And um, so that seems to be kind of a, something that recurs in a lot of the, the, the films that you've made. It is. Um, I would approach a number of those very differently now. I think there's a really important conversation about authorship happening in the um, very much in the BIPOC filmmaking community. Um, it's starting to trickle over into my white filmmaking community. Um, but yes, um, I, for reasons I couldn't understand and articulate at the time that have become clear to me in the past year, uh, I always felt drawn to the marginalized voices, um, that were constantly being, you know, um, not shouted over, that's a little too strong, but just, just, you know, um, bulldozed by, the more common stories that we hear, in, especially in the outdoor space, um, which is very white. Um, so, you know, I was on sabbatical. I was an editor at National Parks Conservation at the time. Um, National Parks Conservation Association, did I say that right? Um, and there was this, they had this really cool program where when you hit your seventh year, you got to take a six week sabbatical and pursue some passion projects. So I had, again, been, you know, increasingly drawn to the film medium and decided I was going to go to Yosemite. We had an Airstream at the time and just, you know, park it in one of those staff spots and see what stories I could find. And I connected with Shelton Johnson, who's that, you know, amazing ranger who hosted uh, Oprah when she was there. Um, he's done, a, he has a beautiful program about the Buffalo Soldiers. Um, and we connected early on and he said, yeah, I have this like group of like, you know, elderly African-American church goers from LA who are coming out to, to reconnect with their heritage. Um, and it was, it was very rewarding to film that. If I, if I did it again, I'd absolutely have, you know, a black co-director on the ground with me. Um, I was stepping into a community that wasn't my own. And I think there was, you know, it was a positive experience. I think we honored what actually happened on the ground, but, um, there were probably sentiments that those subjects might not have trusted sharing with me in in their uh, experience in the park at that time and then there were experiences that were part of the story that i can never understand so i i have some regrets about my blind spots and how i handled films in the past um but i do stand firmly behind um, the, the push to, to always listen to the quieter voices that aren't getting their due, if that makes sense. So I guess, Amy, looking back, it sounds as though, you know, you've evolved a lot as a director, as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, and I think that's part of the journey, right, as in growth. It looks like you've looked back, you know, and have a lot of thoughts on the stuff that you've done, but as you're looking forward, what are the things that are inspiring you? What are the stories that you want to tell? And where do those passions lie? And do you feel as though the stories that you're telling now, it's a narrower field of the stories you, you want to tell? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, you know, and, and let me just look back a little bit longer to give context to, to what's ahead. Um, when I moved to Boulder and started making films full time, it made a lot of sense to jump 
over into films about the national parks because I had had a job at the National Parks Conservation Association for nine years. So I had a lot of contacts, I had story leads, I had a lot of personal passion. I'd been to a lot of these places. Um, so, you know, to completely jump mediums, it made sense to stay within that topic. And um, I still have a lot of love and, and passion for public lands and conservation and environmental issues. Um, because my films early on were set in the national parks, we kind of got lumped into this adventure film space, which was fun. And there are a lot of really good people in that field. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a runner and a climber and a hiker, and I have been an outdoor girl since I was a kid. So it's a space that resonates personally with me. Um, there were definitely years where I was trying to blend into it and, and really, really fit in. And I kind of had this um, image in my head of, of what it meant to really belong there. And I think those things um, were not helpful to finding my own path as a filmmaker and even just as an individual. Um, so I feel like I've kind of made a hard turn out of that space. And again, I still have a lot of respect for the people doing work there. I still continue to see really great films come out of it. Um, but definitely what's drawing me more are the racial justice stories, social justice stories. Um, and, you know, like this, it's, it's a little like, I don't quite know why this keeps happening, but I tend to, to make really personal films. Um, and I'm not sure I want to do that for the rest of my life, but I know that, um, you know, like they say with writers, write what you know. And, and right now, I think in this transition where I am, um, um, kind of, refreshing my own identity for myself. Um, it helps to just be working on a, a, an anti-racism film that, that was about my own life and my daughter, my relationship with my daughter. Um, I feel like, you know, that was a safe way of staying on my side of the line and not finding myself all of a sudden in some other community that I care deeply about, but can't understand or relate to because it hasn't been my, my life experience. Um, you know, I think um, another place where I'm really excited to explore is the hybrids. You know, I think I think I've seen some really fantastic creative documentary forms recently. Um, I'm uh, I really appreciate with with Jeff Orlowski and what he and his team did with um, the social dilemma. Um, you know, having some narrative scenes in there to help give context to the bigger, you know, issue heavy story, expose. Um, Dick Johnson is dead. Have you guys seen that one? It's one of the Oscar nominated documentaries, but it's a hybrid. There's magical realism in it. And it is just brilliant the way she, she imagined that and, and then actually executed it. Um, you know, I started actually dabbling a little bit with script writing to try to get in a narrative because, you know, I, I again, I think I've had some experiences in the past year that feel really powerful to explore and, and kind of make up the best possible story around, but it's all taken a backseat to the documentary work that's, that's on my plate now. But, you know, I love, I just love people seeing people, I love seeing people push the boundaries 
of traditional documentary. Um, so much so where it's kind of hard for me to fall back into one where it's it's more of a classic formula. And again, you know, mad respect for for the old doc style. But um, as an artist, I get I get really excited to see people pushing those those boundaries. Did, did you see American Animals? Have you heard of that? <laughs> okay, so I have a yeah. great story about this one. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And when I moved to DC, I had to get rid of my car because I was living in an apartment in Arlington. And it was this old Volvo station wagon that I called the Rasta wagon. <laughs> so I drove it back to Kentucky. My parents like were like, it's cool. We'll, we'll take it off your hands. We'll sell it for you. So they ended up selling it to the ringleader. No. Of, yeah, what's his name? <laughs> I, I'm forgetting off the top of my head. I'm forgetting but, his name. Yeah. But my car is cast in the movie. Wow. Um, yep. So I mean, it's, it's the color is a little off, but it's it's totally the same year, the same model, everything. So, um, you know, I'd heard about this film, heard about her rap when I saw it. Like, it's honestly, it's probably one of my top three favorite oh, movies I, ever. I, I love it. it. So I thought it was fantastic. It, it's yeah. maybe a little bit more of like a narrative film with documentary elements than kind of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But it is. They literally, it's, it's uh, for, for those who haven't seen it, it came out, what, three years ago? And it's fantastic. It's so, it's so it's, good. it's a true story about this just complete heist and these guys that try to steal this valuable book. Is it an Audubon, I believe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they try to steal this book from this university and they have this whole heist thing. And while it's happening, they, they, they're interviewing the real guys, you know, that it's about. So it's kind of half narrative, half documentary and... But it kind of plays off each other, and the way it's edited and it's told is very innovative. I, I thought it was fantastic. So. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant. I love I love that movie. Yeah. I'm so, making yeah. a movie list as we talk. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. Are you still finding ways of getting out and enjoying the – I guess not, not many people are now with the COVID and whatnot, but are you able to get out and enjoy the outdoors more now that you don't feel the pressure of making a movie or trying to view it that way? Do you, do you feel released a little bit to just enjoy it on your own terms? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I live in a, I live in Boulder. Yeah. Um, you know, Louisville technically, but not many people are going to know where that is. But um, you know, we're right on the edge of Boulder. We're in Boulder County, um, and it's super easy for me to find an open trail or a path, or you know, drive ten minutes and be up in the mountains um, in a in a significant way. Um, so you know, for sure, that's always going to be a part of my life, and I need it. Like you know, I'll, I'll hit. Um, a point in my editing where I can't see what I'm doing and I'm frustrated and, um, you know, I feel like I should be chaining myself to my desk, but, you know, the much better alternative is to put on my shoes and go for a run, you know, on a trail in South Boulder. So, um, that will always be a big part of, of my, um, of my personal life. And I, and I think too, you know, I haven't ruled out films that e exist with that backdrop either. I think nature is a really healing place. I think we have a long way to go to make it feel safe to, to non-white, um, folks, you know, just going back to the national parks example, you know, there's a really ugly history of segregation in the national parks. Um, so families would go and picnic and try to engage and there are parts that, like the best parts of the park they weren't even allowed into. So, so those are stories that I want to hear um, in more conversations with my white colleagues who are in this outdoor space. Um, and I also think we, we need to really broaden our own definitions um, and what we put on new people coming into that space. You know, I, I remember working at nonprofits where it's like, 
Well, if you're picnicking on the side of a river with your family on a Sunday, that's just not outdoorsy enough or it's not adventurous enough. Like you aren't really part of the club until you're climbing Everest or whatever. You know, I'm, I'm being a little tough here, but, um, you know, I, I think, and, and I think too, I do feel, you know, climate change is a big deal. We've got to address those stories. We have to figure out how to engage the non-traditional conservation crowd with those films and change behavior using those films. Um, but there's got to be um, a better understanding of our cultural uh, diversity in the outdoors. I was actually going to ask about Wolverine, if that was a project that you still had on the books, because it sounded really interesting, you know, talking about the sort of the healing powers of nature, right? And um, maybe, I don't, so we can always cut this, but <laughs> if that's happening, I'd love to hear more about it. Um, I would love to talk about Wolverine um, because that's not a film I've given up on. It's just, it's stalled for a number of reasons. Um, so Wolverine is a short film that we started developing, oh my gosh, like two winters ago now. But um, I met this um, Boulder resident, his name is Jim Beisel. Um, we met at the Adventure Film Festival and he had this amazing story as a former um, Rocky Mountain Rescue volunteer who had experienced so much death and trauma in the backcountry that he, he grew a phobia of the places he loves the most. So um, part of his trauma exhibited as, um, well, it exhibited as panic attacks, but but he, he developed this fear of being too far away from a hospital. I think there was one specific case where a really young, um, a young man in his probably early 20s had a heart um, attack or emergency, something that no one would have ever guessed someone of his age and fitness would, would experience. And if they'd been closer to a hospital, he probably would have survived, but they couldn't do anything out there. So, um, so Jim's been a climber his whole life. He's been engaging in nature since he was a kid and grew up on a farm in, um, in the Midwest. And um, he had been working on a book. He's, he was a nature, he's a nature photographer, wildlife photographer. And he'd been working on a book that highlighted, like a coffee table book, that highlighted um, predators in, uh, in Colorado. So he, you know, he had pictures of ferrets and, um, you know, coyotes and like, like all, like it was this really sweet, you know, beautiful coffee table book that helped bring awareness to the, the plight of these species. Uh, and the last animal that he had not been able to capture on a camera trap was the wolverine. And the wolverine is like this super elusive, like really hardy, high alpine species that is only rumored to exist in Colorado. We're not even sure if it's here. So the Wolverine became the one thing that, uh, that pulled him back to taking baby steps back into, into the mountains. And so literally like, you know, a quarter of a mile back to the trailhead, a half a mile out back to the trailhead, one mile out back to the trailhead. Just, you know, he started taking just these baby steps um, back into these remote places in, in search of the Wolverine to finish this book. So the Wolverine becomes this amazing metaphor for his recovery um, and kind of the, the fierceness you need to find within yourself when you've experienced such trauma 
and you're trying to move on and not let it paralyze you for the rest of your life. So, you know, I, I have always thought still to this day that this is such a fantastic story. And it's, it's a, it's a story that doesn't get told a lot in the outdoor industry that, that really does experience a lot of trauma and loss because, you know, bad, scary things happen when you're out there taking risks. And, um, total, honestly, I've just had a hell of a time finding a, a, a funding partner on this one. So I had to move on to the stuff that was, um, bringing in money. And this one is on hold. Jim is doing great. Um, he hasn't, you know, gotten rid of it, of the anxiety. He's just learned how to live with it and accept it. Um, but as soon as he's vaccinated and things open up, he's planning to go to Alaska to, uh, to keep looking for the Wolverine. That sounds great. I guess you, you kind of open up one thing that I kind of wanted to get into with you, like the funding and just the practical elements of what it takes for people to make films. Cause I think a lot of people don't understand what it, what it means and how hard it is and how difficult it is. They think, Oh, well you make this movie. North face just gives you $200,000 to pay all your bills and you can make this movie. But the reality is very different from that. Do you want to maybe talk about that? And like what your at least your experience in, in you know, documentary filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, Oh, I mean, this is, this is such a big conversation, but yeah. Um, at the simplest level, if you're making your own documentaries and independent films, you are in charge of figuring out how to get the money to hire the crews and pay yourself and, and actually sustain a life off of the, the work. Um, I did a really poor job of it for about six years. And then I finally found a business mentor who completely, um, helped me evolve my relationship with money. So, you know, and it's, it's, when you, when you first come into an art or an industry and, you know, you, you're not quite sure where you're going or what you want to do. And, um, it's intimidating and, um, it's just natural to have a lot of doubts about yourself, your ability, your vision, your skill. Um, but then there comes a point where it's just, it's just stuff in your way that you have to figure out how to unblock and get over. Um, I was really lucky with Era's film um, on Kickstarter. Um, there is a, a civil rights attorney out of New York City who has been wanting to get more involved in film. And he found our project and um, asked if, if we needed an EP. So he actually came on behind the scenes and doubled my budget that I was asking for. Um, still not quite enough money for what this film has turned into It's a seven to 10 minute film that's turned into 30 minutes. But, um, you know, anyway, like, you know, I now have this fantastic relationship with, um, this individual who's super excited and wants to learn more about film and cares about the topics that I'm pursuing, um, because that's a lot of the work that he does too. So, um, you know, I, I think those those moments, those breakthroughs can happen, but it can it can be really painful just getting to that point. But, you know, I, th I think part of what's been helpful with me is just, you know, learning where I am um, marketable as, as just a freelancer. You know, when you step in as a director, I had this this belief, this inaccurate belief that, well, if I'm a director, no one's going to hire me because there's already a director in place everywhere. Right. Like. You know, they're looking for camera people. They're looking for sound recordists. Um, that wasn't true at all. I, um, I directed for um, the Biden-Harris campaign victory video last year. I got to um, 
do some directing for Instagram. Like it's been, it's been really rewarding, rewarding and, and the work is there now. So I'm grateful. Yeah. When did you decide to pursue filmmaking as a career? Like, was it something you'd always wanted to do and always did, or did it go from hobby to career? When I was eight years old, I was, I'm pretty sure that was when I realized I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I didn't have any adults in my life who were on that career path and could articulate that that's what I was doing. I had this little flatbed cassette recorder and I would watch Discovery Channel shows and then I'd go back in my room, I'd write out a script, I'd put a blank tape in the cassette player and I'd record like the audio version of the show. <laughs> like I'd like roar for the lions and have this David Attenborough like narration on top. That was filmmaking, right? That was like total analog eight-year-old 1987 or whatever filmmaking. Um, so I'd, I'd say that it actually started then, if not earlier, because I've always seen the world in movies. Um, professionally, uh, I found myself on National Parks Magazine, um, one, frustrated when I couldn't get across um, like the tone of someone's voice or how excited or the emotion that came through in someone's voice. If I couldn't translate that to print, I'd feel really frustrated by it. Um, and I would often, pick music that I would write my art magazine articles to because the music would help me understand the story better and um, and make that whole writing process more enjoyable for me. So before I knew it, I was I was kind of in a space where I was pulling together these different communication pieces that all together, that's film. But it took me a few years of, of exploring it to really realize that that was film. So I, uh, I started probably five years before I left National Parks Magazine. I started to dabble in it. Media Storm was really big, and I was watching what they were doing because they were doing it so well. You know, the whole online video was just blowing up. Um, so I blogged about it for a while, and then I got that opportunity to go to Yosemite, make my first two shorts. And then, you know, at that point, my daughter came into the world, and I, I couldn't do both jobs at the same time. So I made a, a pretty <laughs> reckless leap over into filmmaking full-time in 2013. Is that fair to say that this is your second career in a sense? Sure. Mm -hmm. What would you say to someone that wants to make the transition? You can define the reckless leap, because <laughs> I feel like I can relate to the reckless leap. I'm just curious yeah. your definition. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, so the reckless part, when I know I have to do something, I just, like, I, there's just no other... <laughs> thing for me to do, but do it. Um, once I have that clarity, I can't, I can't just spin around in the space that I've been in for any longer. Um, but with that personality trait comes um, the tendency to move a little too fast before I have like a really um, secure plan in place. So, you know, I think the reckless part of this was, um, you know, I was making a decent salary at the magazine, but I didn't have a ton of savings. Um, you know, I, I did not have a business plan. Um, I did not understand how the film industry worked. I did not know the worth of a short documentary film in the world. So I was not modeling my budgets off of the worth of that film in, 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 in the industry. Um, I didn't know a thing about distribution and selling. Um, so, you know, I would I would almost say the first six years of my my filmmaking career was just like a really slow, painful, um, you know, personally curated film school in a way. 
Um, and I learned a lot and I learned a lot the hard way and I don't regret it. I said I had regrets earlier. Um, <laughs> there, I, I don't know. I think there's a difference between looking back and seeing how you could have handled something differently and actually regretting it. Um, so everything I did wrong, I learned from, and I appreciate those moments. Um, you know, I just, I think, um, for emerging filmmakers or anyone who's wanting to make the leap for another career, just, just finding the right people who can just give you kind of the no bullshit reality of what it's like to work in that, that industry. Sorry for the, I, you can bleep me out. Um, but that's really important. And, you know, I, I kind of jumped in on a level where I had a lot of peers around me who might've been a year or two ahead, but I didn't really have any, um, like veteran professionals who were, were helping me watch out for pitfalls or helping me think differently about the industry. Yeah. I've, I get calls still, you know, I don't, you, you must as well. You get calls from other filmmakers and stuff. And I always feel like I'm being so just, you know, um, discouraging, which is not what I want to do. It's like, no, I want you to do this. Just understand what you're getting yourself into. Cause it's, it's, you know, generally, you know, you, you get the same questions kind of over and over again, funding, you know, I get national park permits a lot. I don't know if you had, you get that that question a lot, but those kind of questions, ones the things that are very difficult and very hard to do. So, I find myself you find I find myself at least sometimes being discouraging. I don't know if that's what you, but without wanting to be, you know. <laughs> yeah, I you know it's interesting. I have I'm mentoring two young well one young woman who's in grad school and another um, little girl. She's ten and she's in fifth grade in in Denver, <laughs> and she's going to be amazing. <laughs> she's she's yeah. Um, she's halfway there, but, um, you know, I definitely, I definitely don't want to discourage people. I just, I just, you know, I think, you know, so much of it, it's like, there are the obvious things that work and don't work, you know, um, as, as a professional in the space, there are the do's and don'ts. There are successful formulas that you can certainly look to and try, but I really think when it comes down to it, so much of it is our own view of ourselves, right? Like, okay, do I believe I can do this thing? Do I see a clear path on this really complicated subject? Does my life experience allow me to shape this story in a way that's going to honor it? Yes, there's the money. Yes, there's the contacts. Yes, there's the grants. And they're so competitive. Um, you know, yes, there are the business dealings once you finish the film. But I really just think you know, it just comes down to the individual being so clear that this is the thing that they need to do. And then and then all the other stuff falls into place. Looking at your bio, you list a couple of kind of things that seem kind of interesting to talk to. One would be the uh, the Brown Girls Doc Mafia. Um, do you want to tell, tell everyone what that's about? I have never found a group of people that I feel like I belong to until I found Brown Girls Doc Mafia. I want to say it's 4,000 members strong. Uh, from all over the world, we have women who are, you know, based on in, in other countries, you know, making films, you know, that don't ever hit U.S. soil. Um, it was created by an African-American woman here in the U.S., Yabo Boyd. She is a total badass. Um, and there's there's a staff of, of incredible people who have done like every toxic thing I've ever seen in the film industry has been since corrected for me by this group. So it's documentary filmmakers. Uh, it's an incredible network has a very robust and private Facebook page that creates a safe space to talk about things that we 
witness and experience um, as, as BIPOC women in the, the documentary industry. And they've got this amazing directory. And after July, uh, June, when, you know, with the BLM uprising, that directory went out everywhere. And people who wanted to bring more equity into the, the industry started making calls to these brown girls on that list. And it was amazing. I, I got jobs off of, off of that being associated with them. And I'm so grateful for that. One thing I'll just mention, they actually um, fundraised so they could give out grants this year. And these are significant grants. These are like sustainable artist grant, right? Like we'll give you money, no strings attached to help support your work for the next year. Um, I applied in a hurry. I didn't make it. It wasn't my time yet. When they announced the winners, they put a post up on Facebook saying, hey, here are the 146 filmmakers we couldn't choose, and it was so hard, but please chime in here and send them all your love. Like, when does that ever happen with an IDA grant in the larger documentary space? It just doesn't. So it's just been, it's, it's been this incredible, and then I was on the call this morning, you know, watching the Zoom call where the, the, the grantees, you know, got to share about what their projects were and, and give their little acceptance speech, and everybody was in tears. Um, because it's hard and we do have where we come up against things that white filmmakers don't experience and it hits on very deep and personal levels. Um, again, this is the stuff you can't separate between work and, and life and um, to experience those struggles and then and then have the support come in. It's just it's just a, a phenomenal experience to know that there's this amazing and really legit group of women who always have your back. So yeah brown girls doc mafia check out their directory online and hire from them because they're amazing you know just just to give a little context to how important the bgdm group is and the, the fact that filmmakers can find other filmmakers who look like them who share their life experiences whose communities have a little more in common you know i was on this massive um zoom call with two, about 220 people filmmakers on it and it's all about distribution and the people leading the call had this uh analogy that they kept coming back to about the old world of distribution and the new world of distribution and as they kept using these terms they they put up a slide that looked like this very christopher columbus type ship sailing to the new world to, to discover and conquer the new world, right? So I immediately like started private messaging my BGDM girls who were in, in the chat, in the Zoom chat, because I was aware that, you know, two or three of them were on this call. And I was like, oof, this feels really icky to me. And I'm super distracted right now because I am feeling in my bones, in my colonized ancestry, like how painful it is to look at this slide and hear them talk about this trope over and over and over again without any consideration of people on the call whose families have actually been colonized. So we kind of agreed that we were going to send an email out. And then there was this moment where the speaker just said, I just love this trope of old world, new world. And we couldn't, we couldn't help it. We started typing into the chat publicly and dissented. And I think it would have felt pretty scary to do if I didn't have those women there backing me up and validating my experience. But in the end, I felt like it was like a little bit of progress where maybe we opened the eyes of um, maybe we cleared a little bit of a blind spot 
for, for these organizers and the, the other participants um, who probably would have never had that experience by seeing a slide like that and hearing that analogy. So, you know, it's just, it's just one example of my hope for the larger film industry and film community to start checking the language, the assumptions, becoming a little more of the blind spots. And yeah, if we can keep taking those baby steps, then I think we'll be in a much better place down the road. Um, Amy, you mentioned your daughter earlier. Um, if you don't mind me asking, um, how old is she? And yeah, how old is she? And like, as a mother and as somebody who, you know, loves the outdoors, and you said you started this journey kind of pre-pandemic or early in the pandemic about trying to get her outdoors without giving too much away from your story and your documentary. Like, what has that journey been like through the pandemic for the two of you? And have you gotten closer? And have, how has that outdoors impacted you and your daughter? Um, so Era is eight years old. She, we're really tight. She's an amazing kid. And she, um, you know, I'm lucky that I had a daughter who fits so kind of willingly into my life and my lifestyle. You know, she's always been athletic and outdoorsy. I mean, growing up in Boulder, you know, she was rock climbing when she was three years old. It's not like it was a total void in our lives, but um, being in a, you know, particularly planned manicured community and then just, you know, with the reality of screens, it was, it was hard. She's, she's like any kid these days, you know, it's, it's, it can be a fight to get them off the screens and, and outside unstructured and free range. Um, and especially when, you know, I'm, I'm so tethered to them too. I mean, I really rely on social media for my career connections. It's hard for me to like drop Facebook. You know, I think what was beautiful about the pandemic is there, there was about a week or two there where it's like, you didn't know everything was up in the air. It was like, you shook up the snow globe. It's all swirling around. You don't know where things are going to land. So we had this time to just be together um, and blow off the structure, the old structure of the day. You know, we weren't driving anywhere. We weren't going to the grocery store. And so we would, you know, we, we would hop the fence of the golf course and, and explore like the big hollow trees and listen for the owls and, you know, have races um, across the green. And um, we would take our journals out and around the neighborhood and with our masks on and just sit down on the corner and pick something to draw. Um, so, you know, and, and that's continued. We've moved. We live in Louisville now. But, um, you know, there's a big field behind our house and, and she's out exploring that all the time. So, you know, it definitely opened up. Um, it opened up a lot for us. It's, it's going to continue to be something that I prioritize for us as a family, but I'm not worried. She's, um, she, she's an outdoor girl and, and she appreciates it. And she's learning about, you know, what our planet is facing and what her generation is going to be living with. And she's, she's a pretty aware kid. Good job, mom. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah. I get it wrong a lot. Trust me. <laughs> it's but, all part of it. <laughs> yeah. I actually learned how to skateboard this year so I could skateboard with her. I've got a I've got an amazing scar on my hand now. <laughs> I'm a little too old for this, but anyway, that's another way that we we go outside and play together. We skateboard around Louisville. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How how has the pandemic affected your your filmmaking? I mean, obviously you have the the, the themed film, you know, that you you've been talking about, but has it affected your work in other ways as well? Yeah, I'm one of the lucky people who lost work but got it back and then some. And again, I have. Brown Girls Doc Mafia to thank for that because I know production companies found me that wouldn't have found me otherwise. 
you know, I, we also did some pandemic specific projects. So CU was looking to one of their um, nurse practitioners who teaches psychological first aid to do an educational video for the medical frontline workers who were really dealing with some big mental health issues. So we, we made a video for them, a training video for that. And that was really rewarding um, because I knew it was actually directly affecting people right in our community who really needed support. You know, I think, I think too, something about the pandemic, um, my partner, Jason Houston, he's a a conservation, um, he doesn't like to use that title anymore. He's a photographer. He's a concerned photographer. He's done a lot of work for nonprofits who focus on conservation. A lot of his work has been in Peru, in the Peruvian Amazon. He's been down there, I think, at least a dozen times and has um, an ongoing project that he can't get to. So, you know, while his work is still on hold, um, I've brought him in as a DP for a bunch of my work, and we're now collaborating on things together. You know, we are writing this psychological thriller together. Um, We took a week and just went down to my buddy's place in Santa Fe and just had this you know, writing retreat to try to come up with the next film. And that was really fun. So, you know, I just, I think beyond just like the kind of logistical changes, um, it's, it's opened up space artistically too to really, again, push those boundaries and and approach the projects differently. Um, So Amy, what's next? I mean, I know you've talked about, you have some film projects, but um, is there any sort of things that haven't started yet that you're super excited about or ideas or, do you have any adventures coming up that maybe are outside of work even? Yeah. Um, I think the thing I'd love to talk about, and I haven't articulated this a ton out loud yet, so this will be an interesting practice here, um, but the feature documentary that I'm developing is kind of a, um, it's like V2 of Era Untamed. It's a deeper dive into the experience as a, a BIPOC person living in a white community. So I'm really excited about the potential for this. The the way I want to do it is I want to cast four-ish film directors who are BIPOC people who are raised in or are still living in white communities and have them take their cameras out and, and take these deep dives into how that experience has shaped them. Um, Because you know, there's this thing that happens when, you know, it's not possible, depending on how the shade of brown of your skin. But, you know, I am half English. So I, again, I'm white passing. And as a result of that, it was really easy for me to blend into my white community. But there's a lot that you have to kill um, inside yourself to do that. So, um, you know, I've, I've come to a very strong opinion that blending is its own form of racial violence. And I'm really interested to take a deep dive in my own experience and my own upbringing. It's going to, you know, my, my, my mom is amazing. She's, um, she's amazing, but there are things I'm going to have to address with my family um, and my, my friends. And, and I am going in knowing that I have these assumptions that are incorrect. So I'm just really trying to hold a curiosity around this. But to be able to do this in tandem with these other filmmakers Um, and come back and put our stories together in a way that, you know, really helps us find our identity in these spaces and also gives us voice in these spaces. And, 
you know, it's just, it's just so easy to, to feel like you're kind of floating along and you don't belong anywhere um, when you're mixed race or you've been raised in a community that doesn't reflect your, your genetic makeup in a way. So, so I'm really excited. There are some grants out right now that I'm going to be applying to. And, and I've never, actually, I've never been so excited to apply to grants before, but this one, I just feel like I know what I want to say. Like, I'm super clear on the authorship of this one and I can't wait to to find my partners and make this film. I love that you mentioned that you want to approach it with a sense of curiosity. I don't know, that just resonated with me. I really like that. Yeah, I think I there's there's no other ethical way to do it because, you know, I know that I, I'm, I'm going to come in with some judgment about, you know, how I perceived this this person or this group of people to be and, you know, hanging on to that stuff isn't helping progress the cause at all. So it's going to be like a lot of big bites from the humble pie, but, <laughs> you know, I'm going to feel pretty warmed up from Era's film, so. Do you have a release date for that yet or, or an idea of when we'll be able to see that? You know, I'm, I'm going to guess it's at least a two to three year project. Um, you know, we're, it's, we'll have to, you know, find the right people to, to be characters with me in it. And um, it takes time to fundraise and bring all those stories together in an edit. Um, so yeah, in the next couple of years, hopefully. And do you do most of your own editing, Amy? Yeah, I do. I love editing. I love it. I mean, it drives me crazy and it kind of sucks because you're sitting at a desk for hours and hours and hours, but that's, I mean, so much magic happens in the edit. Um, I would love to bring a really good editor in on, on some of the things I'm working on to free me up for other stuff. Um, it's been a long time since I've been able to do that, but I do, I do love the edit. Well, Amy, why don't you tell everyone where they, how they can, where they can find you, you know, any sure. links, you know, whatever, any way they can help you or help the community in, in any way. Yeah. Um, I appreciate that. So you can find me at amymarquis.com. That's A-M-Y-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S. You know, Era's film, we're getting the website going for that. So that'll be up soon. And that will be its own living, breathing thing out in the world here shortly, I'm hoping by the summer. But yeah, amymarquis.com is, is the best the best link awesome well, well again th thanks again super sorry so sad everything that's happened you know boulder yeah, sad about you. all of that so hang in there and thanks so much for for being on the podcast amy we really appreciate it it was great talking with you thank you yeah thank yeah, you pleasure talking with you well that's going to do it for us please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and follow us on social media on instagram at almost there underscore ap or the almost there adventure podcast on facebook you can find Severia at Adventure Us Women, that's Adventure US Women, Jeff at The SoCal Hiker, or me at The Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almosttheradventurepodcast.com. Because of the timely subject matter of this episode, we released it right away. So for real next time, we'll have trail advocate, runner, and retired circus performer, Randy Wharton. As always, thanks for listening.